Are you suffering from poor decision-making skills, lack of self-confidence and self-esteem? Do you have impeded development of social, emotional, and sexual skills? Then you've come to the right place. Hi, I'm Rachel, and you might be suffering from religious trauma. I left evangelicalism and started a podcast. I talk about my experience with purity culture, why I left, and the journey afterwards. I'm happy you're here. Come along for the ride. Cheers to leaving. So, hi, it's nice to meet you. It's so nice to meet you. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you for having me. I hope I, you know, can contribute in a way that really works for you and for your listeners. I, I think so. I'm, um, I listened to your story, like I said, and it was really intense, but like really, um, I don't know. It's cool to have someone like that on my podcast because it's a little bit different than like what I grew up in, but we can still find a lot of similarities in organized religion and control and things like that, unfortunately, but it is amazing. You know, it really is. I mean, because I'm also like in the cultic studies field, I end up really being exposed to like religions or spiritualities or belief systems that span different cultures, Mm -hmm. like whole different societal structures. And Rachel, it's all the freaking same. Yeah. I mean, like it really, it's so kind of mind blowing when you get into like the unhealthy dynamics. It's like, I guess because it's human nature, you know, so then it's across the board, it all ends up similar. Yeah. Once you get like that power complex going and, and everything, it sort of all becomes predictable after that. (laughs) So like different circumstances, different beliefs, but same sort of dynamics, which is why, even though my experience is different than yours, I feel like we can still relate on a lot of things. And I I think a lot of our listeners will still be able to relate on a lot of things. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, if you want to like, just, I mean, I listen to your episodes, but if you just want to like, give us a little quick, you know, idea about who you are and a little bit about your backstory and just your background with, um, you know, the high control group you were in and, all that. It doesn't have to be super long, but just so people can kind of get to know you a little bit. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, Yeah. So happy to share a little bit about my background. And um, I know you had asked me in particular about my background with religion. Mm -hmm. So I actually grew up Presbyterian and yeah. And um, I was actually quite into that in a lot of ways. Um, you also asked a little bit about kind of growing up in my family with religion and the general gist was that my mother would basically drag my brother and I to Sunday school every Sunday. We would have an argument about having to get dressed up 
we would finally go after questioning endlessly why dad's not coming to. <laughs> gotcha. So I think for her, it was kind of a, a very typical, um, like, let's bring the kids to church to teach them some basic morals principles about morality. And yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and actually, I immediately, um, I think I always felt something at church that, you know, I guess I would label as like spiritual, you know, something that felt a little mysterious, but comforting and good and the smells and, you know, all of that. I really, and the music, the choir, Mm -hmm. and that actually really stayed with me. I, I participated in the choir myself. I think it was partly an excuse to kind of get out of the house and be with friends during the week, but, um, but I was into it. Then I'd say the transition, um, you know, you asked about religion, but I think also this story is, is really about spirituality as well, you know, kind Mm -hmm. of connection and relationship to what we perceive as the divine, you know, sort of that journey. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, because I'm framing it that way, I would also bring this in that um, kind of late in high school years and college, my personal value set was very much around deep friendships, diving into self-discovery and kind of the spiritual realms and doing it a lot with drugs, you know, that we started experimenting with uh, hallucinogenic substances Mm -hmm. with MDMA. And I think there was something about that in conjunction with this friend group of mine, you know, we were reading Jack Kerouac. We were reading the Bhagavad Gita. I was into self-help books. Like I remember in college when I was kind of bummed out and depressed, I remember thinking, if I feel bad, all I have to do is bring this book to the coffee shop have a little cup of coffee and read this book and everything will be okay. You know, like just hanging on to the things that were sort of, that brought me back to myself. And Mm -hmm. that definitely was kind of the spirituality in different ways. And I'd say connection, uh, like human connection, you know, that relationship, very important. Yeah, for sure. So that's probably a good little, oh, well, and then what happened was I ended up career-wise, I ended up moving to Boston uh, to work with, I was getting my degree in home birth midwifery, and I ended up in Boston practicing as a midwife which also in some ways, as I was sort of looking at this question and following that sort of spiritual thread, that also was sort of fostering that, that life for me, you know, and in tuneness medically with a woman and her body and birth and being in a family's home during this really sacred time and, and being attuned to all those things, right? Like, like, how's the woman doing? And did the labor just halt and who's in the room? Like, is there something energetically we need to shift or, you know, so you kind of get the flavor Mm -hmm. during that time. Um, 
when I was kind of a very newer full midwife, I met another midwife at the very first birth that I attended. And she was the one that introduced me to this group that I joined that I uh, tend to label as a cult, um, but it actually, it was Christian oriented. I mean, it was foundationally Christian and I can go into that in a moment. Um, But I was 25 at the time. I was in it for 11 years until I was 36. Um, I'm 45 now, so I've been out for nine years. Um, So the way that we described this, uh, this organization was that it was like a Christian mystical school. And we basically described that as like an inner path to Christianity, just like Zen is to Buddhism or Sufi is to Islam. And for Christianity, there's not really a word for it. So we called it mystical Christianity. It was kind of mystical. I like that. (laughs) (laughs) Mystical. Yes. So um, it was heavily based in meditation work. We were doing a ton of meditation. It was based in biblical teachings from the New Testament primarily. Um, But then there there were also like esoteric teachings and sort of Gnostic roots, Eastern roots to some of the teachings. There was also even, you know, science was brought into some of it. So um, bringing science into some of the, like even Jesus's teachings, you know, like the law of cause and effect. Yeah. Like what you put out, so you shall receive. Um, Okay. And then we also did a lot of work actually with Catholic based rituals and sacraments. So the priests served communion every morning, um, even Eastern rituals and sacraments. So for example, one of the rituals that we had that was kind of considered like one of the highest attainments that one could have is something that you've probably heard references to this. Uh, It comes up a little more in Eastern philosophies, um, but we called it self-realization. And it essentially was a ceremony that was conducted whereby, so also in this school, it was all based in this hierarchy where there were students and teachers. So very Eastern in that regard. Mm-hmm. almost closer to an ashram than a monastery. Um, and what is an ashram again? Yeah. So that's more of like an Eastern school um, okay. where you might see uh, find uh, Buddhist monks. Um, okay. So for, so for example, um, like a ritual like that, I'll, I'll share a little bit about it so that we can begin to understand also some of the power control dynamics in addition to the spiritual kind of laced in with that and um, violations, you know, some of these violations that begin. So with that ritual, it was actually taken from and based in some of the work of Paramahansa Yogananda's group, the Self-Realization Fellowship. And it is a ritual that one goes through when the teacher decides that the student is ready to come directly face-to-face 
with the God self within. So our practice was very much based, like our meditation practice was based on asking questions within of your pure God self, unadulterated, pure pureness, mm-hmm. and then sitting in silence and waiting for an answer. And we called it inner guidance. But what's fucked up about this structure? <laughs> Sorry, can we swear on this podcast? We can swear. Oh, honey. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I figured since you had an episode called Ho something, hoeing it out. Healthy ho, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So in this dynamic, um, one has to be prepared, right? So it's all about kind of spiritual attainment and your teacher deciding that you're essentially ready for this experience. So the teacher is a crucial part of this experience in which they spiritually lift what they refer to as kind of the veil, the spiritual veil between this side of the world and the other side, the kind of spirit side, the side where God, Jesus, and Mary, angels, what have you, exist. And at that point, you would then have direct access to the God self within and basically, you know, essentially spiritual enlightenment is really what that's supposed to be about. What's interesting about that dynamic is that you have the teacher involved and you not only have them involved in this really sacred space that might be your quiet, private place within where you sort of dwell with your inner purity or wisdom or whatever you want to call it, but that they are there and kind of deeming and seeing spiritually what's happening inside of you to me now, having been through that and out of the organization, is such a gross violation of your inner sanctuary. So, so I share that to kind of bring in those elements and also this system whereby you are attaining spiritually. And so in that dynamic, The teachers have all the power to control what spiritual gifts you get to receive, right? Like self-realization. Yeah. So, so that's a little about that. And then in terms of terms of the organization as well, um, one of the things that really attracted me to it, for example, which, um, you know, I think these themes emerge both in religions and in these variations of kind of cultic groups that we have where um, there's something that feels really special and different. And for me, part of that was that, so there were two leaders, two teachers, and one was male, one was female. They were not together um, sexually Um, but running the organization together. And they were essentially kind of these visual, the visual representation of what the spiritual leadership was. So they held 
this teaching that Jesus and mother Mary were came for different purposes, but held equal spiritual power that Jesus could essentially have never have been here had Mary as a pure vessel, not prepared herself to hold and contain this extraordinary light that was the Christ light for her to actually contain that in her being, that there had to be a purity about her in order to be able to hold and be with that and contain it. And that I thought was cool. I was like, okay, this is, we've got the men and women on equal playing fields here. You know, it's like, (laughs) yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah. So that, that was like a general overview around kind of the teachings and all of that. And then just for your listeners, the, there was a lot that was, um, especially as time went on, that was extremely unhealthy that are very similar dynamics, I think, across unhealthy spiritual groups. And, um, but one of the kind of signature things about my story is that I had been very, very close with my family. I, my brother and I are the two siblings. Um, and he's two and a half years younger than I am. And we grew up traveling a lot. Um, we lived internationally quite a bit. And my mom always said that she thought it was that, that brought us close together. And I realized as time went on, it really wasn't that right. Because some siblings just don't sync up and some do. And I realized you know, there, it just is something where my brother and I got lucky and just have some, obviously we've had major bonding over the years, you know, I'm not saying it's just that, but really we do also just flat out get along. Um, you know, we have some similar things going on and it's easy easy to love him. It's easy to get, you know, to to (laughs) together and hang. Um, So I think that the teachers, when I first got in, I think they felt all of that right away. Um, And I think it was a red flag for them, you know, that they wanted to begin to detach me from my family right away, which they didn't do with everyone. Um, And so part of a huge part of the extraordinary pain and unhealthiness and then consequential healing that I needed to do was around this massive dynamic of breaking from my family and not speaking to my brother for five years, not speaking to my parents for eight years of this time period that I was in. And there was, you know, there's tons to say around that. It was quite dramatic. And of course, you know, my story's out there. Um, Yeah. So, so those are kind of the basics, Rachel. <laughs> I, I don't think we can, we can call that basic, but <laughs> not a basic story. Um, what's interesting too, is the little ritual you talked about kind of reminds me of like in the old Testament where before Jesus came back, the priests had to like go and like do the whole unveiling because like commoners like us, like weren't worthy or holy enough. And so it reminded me of that a little bit, just stuff that's in the old Testament. Um, and it's also interesting, but it makes sense in like how they were doing it with, um, 
like you have to ask within you and then wait for an answer because at least growing up, I feel like, um, I was taught that, um, like God lived within you. So like, but they didn't want to call you like having an inner God, because that would make you like better than God or equals with God or whatever, you know, and we can't have that, but, um, it's just interesting what they pulled from like different religions and then turned it into like their own thing. And then put that like high power control thing inside of it. It's just interesting. It is. (laughs) Yes. Great summary. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, so yeah. Um, and and then going into mental health, I'm looking over this way because that's where my notes are. Um, what was my next question? I think it was around, um, clients having like negative mental health experiences and high control. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Religious mm-hmm. backgrounds. Mm-hmm. yeah. I was wondering about like your clientele and just kind of like how many of them have like some severe trauma from just any sort of religions. Cause I know, I mean, in my opinion, religion in itself is fine. It's just when it, it becomes like indoctrinating and um they start dismissing like things like mental health and mental illness and putting it back on you as in like maybe it's your sin that's causing you to be mentally ill or maybe it's your whatever it is so since you specialize in that and that's your background I just wondered if a lot of your clientele you know are kind of affected by this and kind of come from that and maybe even some of their mental illness stems from that because that can greatly affect it too. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting because, you know, I've got people that are working with me specifically around these issues and come to me for this. And then I've got clients that don't even really know that I have this whole element of kind of cultic studies and coercive control psychology. And It's really interesting, Rachel, because as I was sort of contemplating this question, I realized it really is. So if I had to whittle it down, I would say that the real problems arise in control or power over or dynamics that allow for like manipulations and manipulative tools to be used. And I did like take a few notes to hopefully succinctly go into that a tiny bit. But what what has been interesting for me is that a lot of my clients who don't know that I'm in this whole field um, do have some sort of, you know, spiritual or religious belief system. And it's interesting because I wouldn't consider those individuals to be in necessarily a really unhealthy group. But what's been fascinating to me is that sometimes they are still caught in some of the unhealthy cycles. So I'll give an example of what I mean. Prayer can be a very powerful tool um, and can bring so many people solace. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But there can be 
an odd line that gets crossed with it that ends up, and this is sort of, you see this also in kind of like new age manifestation teachings. If the teaching loops back around and results in it becoming the individual's fault that they could that they couldn't change something through prayer through manifesting then something's wrong mhm so it's very interesting i think to it's like sometimes um people receive the teaching of prayer and they, they use prayer a lot. And it is just a flat out positive experience. You know, they, they have worked out something in that dynamic of, or in their esoteric understanding of how the universe works or how the energy or how energy flows that that does not, the fact that they are praying for something that doesn't happen does not loop back around to that being their fault. They've been able to kind of make sense of that in some way. And so it's been very interesting to me. I, I, it sort of hit me in a new way when I was thinking about this question and going, oh, it's not actually just clients who are specifically wanting to address religious trauma. I actually see that in lots of clients who are just spiritual you know, and are, you know, have a really difficult time reconciling that they are praying and praying and praying about something that's just not happening. So, so that's where it's like, that's where we need to be where I think like anytime there are teachings that you can't, you can't land in a place other than individual blame, personal blame, something's off. That's become like one of those little red flags, you know, Mm -hmm. little touch point. Um, But to get back to your question, (laughs) I would say, (laughs) yes. um, You know, it's so, of course, people experience such a variety of things in life and in religions and groups at schools that, you know, life is so crazy. And, and so I guess if I were to speak to like high, a high control, a high control experience, which would include, you know, negative religious groups, um, you know, people leave, people experience trauma, they feel deceived, they feel conned, used, like sometimes emotionally, physically, sexually, mentally abused, you know, serving a group, a belief system or a leader. Um, And that's not even, you know, the trauma of the leaving experience. I mean, that's kind of a whole another thing, you know, that certainly I know, you know, this definitely spans uh, religious groups for sure, because they're so family oriented. And so many times people are born into religions and the whole leaving experience. I mean, my God, some people are having to, they know that if they leave, they are going to be completely cut off from family, from loved ones, from their kids or their parents. I mean, the closest relationships they've had. So these things are devastating, you know, and then 
if you were born in to one of these groups, it's really different from having been in there for a long time. I mean, you're entering a land of like the world unknown and often, often, you know, again, depending on the situation of that group, sometimes people work for the organization. And so they really don't have a lot of money. They're completely tied in financially. Um, so literally they know if they leave, they've got no money. Maybe they've had no education because they never thought they needed to, because they just were doing stuff for the church or for the group. And that's crippling, you know, and, and so scary. I mean, right. It's daunting to want to leave something like that when like, even if you're like older and leaving and like, say you've been a pastor for 40 years and you're like, what, what do I do? What else do I do? This is all I know. This is all I have education in. And yeah, I mean, you're just, it's, it's completely starting over. And this is why, you know, I think these stories are so important to share of people who have, you know, survived and gone through these things because really it is, you know, the extremeness of the devastation is, can be crazy. You know, I mean, it really can get extreme. Mm -hmm. Um, So did you, um, so I know you were a midwife before entering the cult. Did you, uh, are you still midwife? No. Okay. Did you go into mental health um, counseling? And obviously we know why you went into cult studies, but um, (laughs) did you go into mental health counseling after leaving the cult uh, because of your own experience? Yes. So this is actually kind of interesting. Again, I realized when you like, when I saw this question from you and I was thinking about it, I realized, oh, how interesting asking me about sort of this transition into mental health counseling. It actually, Rachel, was really like a full circle moment for me and sort of a completion because it was for me the final vestiges of, well, maybe I need to backtrack for a second. So as you said, I was a home birth midwife. What happened in that group was that I was told that I had to change careers because I had oh. too much feminine energy. So I need oh. balance. The patriarchy strikes again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it. I basically, so I listened, I got my MBA. I ended up becoming a project manager and which honestly, like for anybody that knows me, it's sort of like, yeah, I can do that job, but is it the perfect thing for my soul? No. (laughs) So I did it, which again, you know, in some ways, I mean, talk about the weird, weird benefits or the weird things that you can find some benefit in out of these bizarre circumstances and negative experiences. I did learn how to really work when I didn't care that much about the job itself. I figured out kind of what I could care about, like interacting with people, being of service to management, you know, I figured that out. And I think that was a good stretch for me in some ways, Mm -hmm. but certainly not 
kind of what my real work should be. So what happened was that as soon as I got out, I immediately felt that like, I just, you know, I, I had a career that really held no meaning. And then I had lost all of my meaning that had gone into this organization and service. And I'm just kind of standing there without that as well. And I just knew that, you know, kind of the healing arts were always sort of my jam. You know, I, I love medicine. I like science. Um, and so actually I was introduced to somebody who was an internal family systems counselor. And when I checked that out, I went onto the internet and I actually had the experience that I've only had one other time. And it was this experience of like, you click on the screen, you see the words and you know, you know, and it was just one of those things that right away I was like, yes to this and I need to do it. And that was honestly what, what moved that whole, you know, what opens that whole um, area for me. And, and there were things, it's actually interesting because it's the, uh, in terms of how I work with clients, you know, it's very much centered around what they need and things are very kind of individually sculpted for that person. But IFS is one of the modalities of psychotherapy that I'm very comfortable with and love using. And I think part of the reason, Rachel, is has everything to do with my background, which is that this, this way of working with people really empowers the client. It has them constantly tuning into their wisdom. And we move from there. And I'm sort of you know, I'm the guide, maybe asking some questions, but like, if that question doesn't sit right for the client, then we go a different direction. So mm -hmm. it's very, and it's also really respectful. Like there's a lot of permission asking to move. I was going to say, it sounds like they're in control, which is probably super empowering after a background in religion or a high control group or whatever. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's and awesome. yeah. So so I kind of fell in love with IFS. And then what had been happening is that when I was in my cult, my parents had tried um, to contact basically people and sort of do anything that they could. They contacted cult experts. They tried to get in touch with other family with um, adult children in the same organization. And they did. So when I got out, my parents had actually been in communication with some of these other parents for years. I mean, they wow. had like a nine year relationship, you know, and about, I think it was probably about six months or so. My parents waited a little while. And one day they said to me, listen, no pressure at all. Um, you know, and I think I even remember my father kind of saying like, yeah, and I don't even know if I want you to do this, but you know, my mom said, you know, we have this friend, <laughs> you know, I think just the whole fear, it's like, God, just yeah. stay away from all of that with a 10 foot pole, you know, <laughs> obviously my family was completely traumatized by the entire thing. So, <laughs> so they, um, 
So my mother said, you know, there is this woman that we've been speaking with for many years, and we're wondering if you'd be open to speaking with her. And that began a relationship that I have now had with this woman, well, six months after I got out. So now we've had a relationship for over nine years, for nine years. And that friendship has been many things to me. Um, it has been honestly part of my, like, you know, to put it in weird Christian terms, part of my penance. And so again, talk about, uh, spiritual or religious teachings. It's like penance in a, in a healthy form might be this when we tune into ourselves and feel like there's something that we can give over in doing something that's hard, you know? So for me, receiving the stories and receiving the pain of this mother and the torture that she has been in over all these years, knowing that that's exactly what my parents went through, somehow felt good and it felt right to me. That's probably like a good example of penance, you know, like it was, it was healing and it felt right that I, I might be there for her in whatever way I might make a difference. And, and also that there have now been like all these gifts to this relationship. And so this is kind of one of them. She, for years was trying to get me to go to ICSA conferences with her. That's an acronym for International Cultic Studies Association. This is sort of the international body that um, has all things cult resources. Mm -hmm. And what happened was I ended up deciding to get involved finally and attended a conference and the fallout from that was that I ended up getting this email and it said, um, because it's COVID, this is the first time that we're going online, but there is the only program internationally that is a master's program in the psychology of coercive control. So easily put coercive control is sort of the psychological repetitive manipulation Um, that one might experience in an intimate relationship or a group dynamic. Um, People who take this program, this master's program are typically working with individuals who uh, maybe it's the sex trafficking, gang violence or gangs, um, cults, uh, and then cults of all sorts, right? Extremist Mm -hmm. organizations, that might be political, religious, you know, you name it. And what happened was I got an email in my inbox that said, Ixa is hosting a webinar to introduce people to this program. And the two professors, Linda and Rod Dubrow Marshall, will be presenting. And I went, hmm, what's that? 
<laughs> and from there, I basically, the rest is history. And, and now I've completed the whole educational component of that and am into the phase where I'm conducting research and, and a study um, for the master's degree. But that, wow. that program has been amazing. It's really and I, and it's been cool because actually in social media, through social media world and connections, I've had some people ask me about it and, um, I've been able to actually write some recommendations. And so from the social media sphere, I now know some new university of Salford master's program people. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah. That's really neat. Oh man, it sounds like you've lived so many lives (laughs) and had so many careers too at this point, but it's, it's crazy too, how just the way life goes and like how you can go through something that was so traumatic and just like so much, but then like put you on the other side of something that you're so extremely passionate about and that you love doing. And I don't know. Life is weird. Absolutely. <laughs> amazing. I yeah, hope and that- to get to that point. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, um, yeah. And, and what I was starting to say in the beginning is that what was interesting when I was looking at the question that you presented here, I realized that that career change was the sloughing off for me of the last like actual material vestiges of the cult because they gave me that career. And in changing that career, it was sort of like the final, like your influence and stamp that's permanent and visible on my life is no longer. That's awesome. (laughs) And you're helping people. Yeah have also been where you have been. So great. I love that. Yeah, I do. Um, (laughs) I think, (laughs) um, I was wondering too, at least in your experience with your clients too, do you find that mental health goes untreated for a while and people with like religious backgrounds or upbringings or whatever, like say maybe they struggled with something. This is something I can relate to yeah. is maybe their parents either brushed it off and said, you know, you need to pray more or, you know, it's just the enemy trying to tempt you, or maybe you need to be more holier, whatever, you know, do you find that some of your clients maybe have been dealing with this for a long time and you're kind of just like, Hey, this is sort of what's going on and you don't need to pray more. (laughs) (laughs) Loved that you asked this and also, um, you know, just the personal experience of it. Um, so, you know, I think in unhealthy groups, people are rendered like unable to know and understand their own needs and then take action based on that. So it's like, if that's what's happening, then something's off, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that's also such a nice uh, touch point sometimes to bring things down to just like simple, you know, like, are you in that environment? Are you, 
are you being taught or is it fostered that you're able to tune into yourself and know yourself and then make decisions off of that, whether it's medical or, you know, whatever. Um, yeah, but I didn't answer kind of your, <laughs> your, like, I think one of the other things that you had just mentioned was sort of like these teachings that, um, like the horrific teachings, right? The horrific belief systems that Christians sometimes uh, hold around, um, you know, how you shared with me that um, messaging around HIV and AIDS as God's punishment on homosexuals. On gay people, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, that's an insanely tragic part of our history, but it exists nonetheless. You know, it's like, I mean, that was definitely something that I was literally told when I first learned about homosexuality. And I can remember, I think I was around like nine and my parents obviously sheltered me from it because they believed homosexuality was a sin. And, um, I remember my mom, it's, it's interesting too, because my mom had a very worldly life, like <laughs> I'm using worldly, but like, that's the <laughs> word that Christians use. Um, but she was very, I mean, she lived a full life, you know, is what I'm trying to say. And it was just crazy to me how she could have so much life under her belt. And then all of a sudden get into this group in like her forties and just start believing things like, well, because homosexuality is a sin, that's why we have AIDS. It's God's punishment on the gay people. And so hearing that at nine years old, you're like, okay, so my actions, you know, affect me in a way of like physically harming me, or if I'm struggling with this, then it's something I did to feel and think this way and so it's a super harmful narrative but it exists and I'm sure it still exists and I'm sure people are still teaching their children that but yeah yeah it's it's insane it is I mean maybe you've um seen also uh, I wish I could remember the name of it I haven't had a chance to watch it yet but there's a recent uh, Netflix documentary that oh yeah, yeah I haven't watched it either uh pray the gay away is yes. that it yeah pray away pray, the gay pray away pray away pray away the gay pray away <laughs> yeah something I haven't watched it yet just type in conversion therapy yes <laughs> exactly yeah yes. I mean you know I mean, for real, that stuff is actually still in existence. Um, and, you know, I think also that, you know, it's a great example of, you know, with isolation as well, you know, where people just are not even exposed to any other type of thinking. Um, and, you know, we all know this comes out in so many different principles around history. It's like when you can't see an example of something, then it's like, it's not there. You don't, you can't feel yourself because you can't even see it, you know? Mm -hmm. So, um, another yeah. really amazing, oh, sorry. I was going to diverge. No, second. Yeah. Okay. I, Go I for was it. Say a little plug for, um, 
this incredible movie uh, called uh, Disclosure um, that I think is oh. on Netflix as well. I'm going to write and, that down. Yeah, I hope I have the right name. If not, um, we'll- I'm sure something that. will pop up. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll correct it and get it right, at least for you know podcast notes or something. Right. Um, but Laverne Cox was a big part of it. And it's really- um, it's a documentary that really guides one through understanding the transgender community. And one of the Ooh, things I would love to watch that then it is, it's amazing. It's so well done. Um, and you know, one of the major themes of that is really this, and I wish I could get this stat accurate. Sorry, it's serving the recesses of my mind, but it is something like 85 or 88% of people, I think, or it might be the US, say that they don't believe they have ever met a transgendered person. So, wow. Yeah. That's a high percentage. <laughs> it is. So, when you think about that, and how a transgender individual might grow up having absolutely not like the only thing there was to look at were bizarre portrayals of men dressed up as women and women dressed up as men in the movies mm-hmm. in in strange ways, you know, not the example of a full, fully embodied authentic individual looking and living exactly how they would express. Mm -hmm. Um, And so anyway, it's, it's very, that whole principle is uh, you know, it's very real. It's like when you live in isolation, you're limited. Right. And I think people think of when people live in isolation, they think of a cult experience or um, Amish people or um, a commune or something. But for me, I was raised Christian, but I was also homeschooled. So in that environment, you can severely isolate your children and completely indoctrinate them and they won't know the difference, which is why I'm in my late 20s. And like learning about things now that yeah. I should have learned a long time ago. And so I also hope to bring awareness to people that it's also in the homeschooling communities, not in like we're weird, creepy people, but like if you homeschool and put a kid in religion, they have no way to know any difference between their world and the outside world. And so when their parents say AIDS is caused by homosexuality and a sin against God, you're going to be like, okay, yeah, I, I guess it is. And so you can almost be told anything, especially as a young child and just not find out till like 10, 15 years later that that was just one mindset of your entire religion. So yeah. That's what I'm dealing with. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And, and now it's a new world, you know, now it's a new world of exploration and discovery. And, Mm. you know, we're all doing that in different topics of our lives at, at different times. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. So going back to mental health, 
at least for me personally, I felt like anytime I was quote struggling yeah. with something, it was morphed into, well, you're being tested the, the darks, uh, or like the evil spirits or Satan is testing you to see like, which you'll choose, like, like our, your faith is being tested and you have to stay strong and you have to be more devote and you have to conquer those feelings. And since the whole idea of, at least in the Christian Bible, it's like, like the Bible is the word of God. So like, there's nothing that can like go against it. They reject any idea that isn't black and white. And so do you think that's where that stems from as far as like mental health wise, like why they kind of go along that narrative because the Bible is, you know, the Bible is the law. Like that is what the Bible says or how it is interpreted. And that's why Christians react that way to mental health. Or do you think it's, I I mean, I know it can vary per situation, but yeah. I was just wondering if it's all the black and white thinking and the fact that the Bible is at the center of it and it's very black and white. And there's just, there's so many weird stories out there about it. Like I saw on Twitter today where someone was like, I remember I had an earache uh, in church one time and I told my parent and they told me it was because Satan was trying to block out God's word instead of being like, maybe we should take you to the doctor and figure out why you have an earache, you know? And I have the same experience as a small child. I had like a sinus infection, but I was smelling like snot, you know, when you're all stuffed up. But as a young child, I'd never smelled the smell before. And so I went to my mom and I was like, oh, it smells so bad, you know, like all this stuff. And my mom was like, well, you know, maybe you're just super intuitive, Rachel, because, you know, when when the spirits are tempting you, like the bad spirits, you can smell like a really bad smell. And that's probably what's happening. And like, as a young child, I was like, okay, yeah, sure. Okay. That, that makes sense. And then like years later, when I got that smell again, I was like, I'm pretty sure that's just congestion, (laughs) but I'm just like, my mom is not an idiot. So I'm just like, why? it doesn't make any sense and I'm sure a lot of more serious situations happen you know too where parents are like oh well it's obviously Satan and it's like you know and so it's situations like that where it's just like the whole black and white thinking to where medical stuff just goes out the window and it's like it all just goes back to the bible and everything's good versus evil and Anyway, I went off on a tangent, but basically what I was asking is like, I love your tangent. (laughs) Is it the black and white thinking? And is it the whole, like the Bible is infallible? And is it because, you know, all this indoctrination that people just sort of are like, oh, mental illness isn't a thing. I mean, I was told ADHD wasn't a thing. It was just parents not disciplining their kids. You know, it's, it's so far. Yeah. Yeah. We did the same thing. Yep. Yeah. It's a parental, parental issue of discipline. Right. Yeah. (laughs) It was like, no, that's not a thing. And so I grew up being like, no, that's not a thing. And now I'm like having to relearn that it is a thing, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, well, okay. To, 
to go more direct on your question, I would say that again, anytime the Bible is the word of God, and there are people who are interpreting that and everybody else has to fall into line with that interpretation. In my mind, there's a problem. I think that, that biblical, like a relationship with the Bible can be healthy if one is able to have their own relationship with the Bible you know, is able to be with it in a way that makes sense to them, Mm -hmm. that works for them when they tune in to themselves, to what they know of goodness, you know, to what they know of, of the darkness. Um, But I think, I think you honestly start to tread some dangerous waters when things are taken literally and nobody is allowed to think differently. Yeah. Like when you have like a pastor that's interpreting it for you and saying, oh, well, I know you read this, but that's not what it means. This is what it means, which is a lot of churches. Yeah. 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 So I, I really think like that is one of those areas that I think is such an important message for churchgoers, you know, Mm -hmm. that, that you live at church in the same way that you live in the world, that you are able to, that you see everyone as humans because we all are. And let's just be really real and raw for a second. How many priests do we now know are not only good, not good people, but have actually illegally sexually abused children. Like Mm -hmm. that is something that the general public can get behind that. That's really bad, right? (laughs) If we're going to make things black and white, (laughs) let's get black and white about that. You know? So we need to not blindly trust people. We need to, to, um, interact with religious authority the same way you would with people who maybe know something that you don't know, but you get to choose what you take in and what feels right to you or what doesn't. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's really important in life. You know, it's important on a lot of levels. We don't just go about our life and take everybody's opinion in as our own. That's what makes us us, you know, is that we get to pick and choose how to be and how to move and live. So that's, that's actually a really good way to word that you get to pick and choose. You can't just trust people. I don't know. I mean, and I mean, of course, trust a foundational trust is, is healthy. Um, but that you walk in the world with autonomy over yourself, that this is your vessel that you've been given as a, as a gift to express with, and you are in charge of that, not somebody else telling you how to run it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I feel like autonomy too, is such a huge thing when it comes to religion. I feel like that's the first thing they want to take from you mm -hmm. because if you have autonomy, then you have your power. Like you have power over yourself of what to think and what to feel and how to act. And if they can strip that from you, 
then they can literally do anything. That's right. So that's why if you're in a church where you can't ask questions, again, there's a problem. Get the hell out. <laughs> Run away. <laughs> <And> Rachel. <laughs> I know. And I, my problem too with, well, I have a lot of problems obviously, but one of my problems, at least with mental health and, and diseases and, and things like that, at least with the church is like, we're still like, almost like we're back in the 1500s when we were burning witches, because it's like the church has this long history of attributing like disease and birth defects and mental illness as a result of sin. And whether it's like the sin of the person who has the mental illness or something their parents did or something, you know, whatever. And I know it's like slowly changing, but I just can't believe we're still in 2021 now. Yeah. And, and people still have this thinking and, and even like, you know, in the nineties and early two thousands, when I was being taught this, that, you know, I was like 13 years old and I had like this bout of depression, which I may not have had if I had not grown up in this environment, you know, thinking that I was unworthy and inherently sinful and all this stuff. I mean, it's hard to love yourself if you're being taught that. Absolutely. And instead of, you know, maybe getting me on some antidepressants or maybe getting me to a, a counselor that could really help me kind of like sift through these feelings. I remember my mom and I'm sure she had great intentions, but I remember her taking me to only like Christian counselors who was like, why does the fact that God loves you unconditionally not like make you feel better? And I'm like, well, um, last, the, and then I like got into like my teens and like was driving and stuff. And I remember the last counselor that said that to me, I just like, I stopped talking to them and just completely walked out. I was like, this is just bullshit this doesn't make any sense. And, and you being like, well, God loves you. So now do you feel better? It's like not helping anything. And so, um, anyway, I like went off on another tangent, but it's just, I don't, I don't understand what we're still here with all like the science and all the, all the resources we have now. I mean, it made sense 500 years ago while people thought these things because they didn't have any science. They didn't have any other reasons to understand mental illness. Just like now that we do, why are we still blaming sin? Why are we still acting like medication is bad? And why are we still acting like, I don't know. It's maddening. I think to be honest, Rachel, I have a feeling you said you're in your late twenties. Yeah. I'm 29. Yeah. I'm trying to hold on to that late twenties. <laughs> well done. Well- <laughs> <laughs> you know, I have a feeling and you know, who will know in hindsight, but I feel like there really is something different happening right now in terms of these high control environments that exist in religions or other groups and some waking up and, you know, right now, like there's a woman who, um, who I'm actually about to uh, do a podcast with who has written a book called confessions of a nun and it's N-O-O, it's N-O-N-E. 
And her whole thing is this, that there has right now we have, we are at a time in history where we have the largest number of people declaring themselves religiously, taking their little pencil and marking the little circle that says I'm a religious nun, none. I have no religion. Oh, is that, where is that trending on? Is that trending on Twitter? Just wondering. Um, actually Instagram. Instagram. I think she's mostly I haven't seen that yet, but now I'm going to look for it. Yeah. Um, and I find that very interesting that this is starting to happen because what's also happening is that not that religion hasn't always seeped into politics, but it's starting to happen in a more extreme way than we have seen thus far. And I think at the same time, there's a general societal growth of awareness around cultic dynamics, which are the same as unhealthy religious environments, because, mm-hmm. I mean, I honestly think it's happened, you know, there are many people that have contributed to this, but I think it first began with um, Leah Remini blowing the lid on Scientology and doing massive exposés and you know, HBO picking it up and doing Going Clear. I mean, major stations kind of exposing these things. Um, so all of her work that she then, you know, did a massive series around this whole thing. And you, re- I mean, it is thorough. It's thorough. And you see this stuff and you just go, how on earth can this happen? Um, and I think it's that, the general public, for the most part, around culty stuff is always going, how on earth does this happen? Who the hell joins these groups? It's like this total conundrum to people. Mm-hmm. But when you watch when you watch something on television where you can see a person and you see, them express and you see them talk and you see they're not crazy. And this is just, this isn't just some news story that you're reading about, but you can sort of feel and see them. And then you've got something like the Nexium case that's come out so publicly. And I've watched a lot of episodes on Nexium. It's oh my gosh, crazy. Yes. <laughs> yes. But just like, you know, it sounds insane to go like it was the devil instead of mucus in your nose. It's, you know, it's, it's so similar, just different manifestations. Right. And with something like the Nexium case, what's been especially interesting about that. I mean, these guys had footage from their whole experience. I mean, because of the people that were involved, that they were actually documenting a lot of this material. And so in, in Seduced and in uh, The Vow- I did watch that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You get to really see the people. You get to see also the footage from what they were involved in. You get to see 
the leader speaking, you get to feel your reaction to him. You know, it's like, it's sort of like it is with all cult leaders. Sometimes you see one and, and you get exactly what that whole group got. You're like, whoa, this person is so charismatic. I totally relate. I feel the vibe I'm in. (laughs) Or you just go like, whoa, that dude is a creeper, Mm -hmm. you know, but different people have these different reactions to these different personalities. And it's fascinating to be able to really, I think film shows us in this form in a way that nothing else has. Um, It's just more accessible for people to understand some of the dynamics Mm -hmm. and how they happen. And so I think because there's this wave of the public starting to open and also starting to understand some of these tactics. I mean, even I notice, you know, that the term narcissist is now pretty widely thrown around and understood by the general public. Mm -hmm. And even that is all tied in with this, right? Because that is an individual who's using coercive control. Typically, you know, there's manipulation going on there. So or I should say a malignant narcissist, right? We all have little narcissist, narcissistic qualities about right, us. our ego. Yes. But, yeah. But real, you know, uh, like maladaptive narcissism. Yeah. And so even the fact that that concept is very much kind of coming to light, you know, and that's also really very much through, the awareness of domestic violence. And of course, that's where we even see the term coercive control come out in the law where we're, <clears throat> where we're actually acknowledging that there's this psychological repetitive manipulation um, that cripples people. Um, all of these things, I mean, it's, this is all pretty new, which is somewhat surprising, I guess, but it, it just is what it is. And, and there's a current happening of the change, you know, sort of seen in these things that I've mentioned, I think. And what I also see is your generation. There is a whole, there's a real movement happening around deconstruction, around purity culture. And again, I think a lot of that has come to the forefront because we finally had the Me Too movement. Hmm. You know, again, this sort of allowed and has opened for these cases against famous people that there's never been a platform for that in history. You know, a Harvey Weinstein would never have gone to jail until he did. <laughs> until right. And until brave women primarily have come forward and have devoted their lives to the education and the lawyers that have come forth pro bono to give to the, you know, just, it's really, um, it's an important change that's happening. And I think it's all tied into this systematic change of religion. I mean, I think it's going to have to, it's going to be forced to change or 
we just get super, super divided as a people. Yeah. Which we already have a lot of division happening in general in our country, but, um, yeah, I, I hope the church learns because I think another question I was going to ask you was, um, can organized religion be beneficial to mental health? Mm, Yeah. I know that can be like a weird question, but I, I really am trying to get to a place where I don't think religion is inherently bad. And I know there's community and I know there's support and I know it can like give people a purpose. Yeah. So in your experience, in your opinion, can it be beneficial? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, for sure, you know, just kind of speaking to my own experience and really kind of speaking to like the deconstruction community, it is so freeing to be able to start to fully explore, to give yourself permission to learn, to dive into questions around beliefs that you've had for a really long time. Um, And I really believe that as each person tunes in and honors their own inner wisdom, that they, that each individual figures out their perfect path there, you know, because it's like one thing leads to another and there are so many layers of the, of this process, you know, Mm-hmm. Whether it's like healing, you know, kind of those deeper levels of messages and pattern, thought patterns and feelings that get healed, or if it's just discoveries, you know, new ways of thinking, new ways of, of understanding the universe, new ways of understanding what God is, you know, maybe, maybe starting to explore, like, is God a man in the sky or how do I relate to God now? You know, what is this? I mean, something created, you know, there's a, there's a massive force of creation out there, you know, like, I think that's cool and want to relate to it, Mm -hmm. you know, but again, you know, it's sort of like, I think everybody, it's so beautiful to me, the way each person resonates with these, with the different steps that it's not linear, you know, but the different phases is maybe a better word, the different phases of that discovery and healing process. And so I do think like for me, it's actually sometimes comforting for me to still go to church and the church that I go to that I'll go to when I'm in LA is um, it's Michael Beckwith's church called Agape. And it's, you know, it's uh, very open in lots of ways. And I'll be honest, there are moments where I go, Nope, not taking that one in. 
that just doesn't sit well inside of me. And I, I just let it go because for me, I'm really there for the community to just be in worship with people. Um, and that, and there is something that I get out of that. And sometimes I feel Mm -hmm. moved to do that. And a lot of times I don't, you know, but again, all the different phases, right? Like some people may never want to step foot in a church again, depending on what has happened for them. Um, I think, and this is why, you know, if we get into a little bit of kind of the healing journey, this is why I think it's so important to really also understand the dynamics of the, the groups that you've left or that you've grown up in and part of the real healing work. So, you know, there are of course a couple like prongs to the healing journey that's typical when someone leaves a group of high control, high demand. One of those elements is actually like knowing and understanding the group. So if I have somebody come to me and they are from a group that I've never heard of before, I'll research that group. I'll do sort of all I can to dig in to, to it all. And then of course I'll ask them about it, but I, I do my own research um, because there is a component to the healing that's really like what we'd call for fancy terms, like psychoeducation. You know, there's a psychoeducation component where you're really understanding your group in particular, your leader in particular, the teachings and elements around group dynamics, like what just happens in group dynamics and some of these psychological elements that happen kind of across the board in these, in groups that have unhealthy patterns or unhealthy elements to them. Um, so that is, that's kind of a prong to the healing work. Also often we're dealing with trauma of some sort. That's usually another prong. Um, a lot of times I do like, um, inner child work with people because it's really like a reconnection to yourself and a reunion and a rediscovery And that can be just a super helpful uh, tool. Um, But the main, you know, the main goal that I kind of have my eye on is reconnection with yourself and meaning in life. You know, like how do we get back to it? Because there's just so much loss Mm -hmm. um, from those experiences. And if you're open to it, I did jot down like a couple things that I was like, oh, this may just be helpful in terms of some of these, um, understanding some of these like dynamics that happen in the group. If you want me to. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So (laughs) I don't know. And this is also kind of from, I'll speak from a cultic perspective because the cult is the group of, you know, high control, high demand and you guys decide if your religion fits into that, you know? (laughs) Right. um, So what happens is, is really like cults alter boundaries 
between members and the world by like erecting a sort of psychological wall. And there are two terms that are uh, terms that were created by Robert J. Lifton, who's sort of one of the fathers of uh, studying thought reform. He was actually studying the re-education camps in China and the people who got out of them. So that's essentially brainwashing is kind of another term for thought reform. Um, and so he really studied that. He studied the what happens in that whole dynamic. And then of course, seeing people come out of that, you know, after you leave the environment, you really do return to who you really are. Um, and then of course there's this added layer of like, if you're born in, you know, there, I do work with people who are born in, in a different way than if you weren't there your whole life. Um, but anyway, so he talks about, uh, some of these really interesting concepts. So so this boundary, like this isolation that begins to happen, he has these two terms, mystical manipulation and sacred science. So with mystical manipulation, it's basically like um, some experience that creates euphoria, right? Through like chanting or speaking in tongues, worship, right? And these experiences... Uh, well, the experience of it feels great, right? Like you do feel blessed. You do feel special. Um, and this begins to create this experience that we are different. We're special. And things like this don't really happen outside of this group. Right. And so you're using an experience that actually can happen anywhere in any group, in any environment, right? A spiritual experience, let's call it to, to kind of trap people in this imagination that this is where they get that. And that, and this, this bond starts forming, right? Mm -hmm. So with the sacred science, the sacred science is sort of what underlines the special quality of the group. So basically there are like answers for everything and there's no truth outside of the group. And this also starts to create um, like an internal censoring of outside information. So even people within the group, now, if this is the mindset, even people within the group are now kind of monitoring who's good and bad like if you're watching, you know, horror movies, now you're very, very naughty, right? And you might get told on or mm -hmm. like the Harry Potter books, you know, that were known. Oh my God. I was right? not gonna... allowed to watch yeah. or read that. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, so now you're creating an environment, the message is out there that Harry Potter's bad. Now, if you know, your little friend Jane finds out that you read Harry Potter, she'll probably tattle on you, mm -hmm. you know? And so again, it's like <clears throat> this community is getting built and constructed where outside information is not, not accessible. And you have even members within the organization kind of monitoring each other. So leaders don't have to do it all. So, so essentially cults like alter members relationship with 
their selves through like a doctrine over somebody. So over, it's like in cults, there's always doctrine over person, meaning that's always more important than the person. And this is why we see that there are so many people that have been treated horrendously, right? Because your personality doesn't really matter. Your interests don't really matter. Your health actually doesn't really matter over the belief system and whatever it is that the agenda is for this group or leader. Mm -hmm. Also, there's like this broad definition of sin and a real narrow definition of like humanness and human nature, which also contributes to alienating members from themselves. You know, so for example, like in my group, and I, um, this may be a weird one for people, but I've also heard some of this in typical religions. Like one example in my group was um, in the beginning, it was okay. Like it was actually really cool. We had all these musicians, super creative individuals. Well, pretty quickly, because one of the leaders was a musician and like in the beginning, everybody's up on stage together, singing together and slowly it transitioned into it being his show. And the teaching began that musicians are pretty selfish and indulgent in the eyes of God. So you have to shut that part of you down. And also you have to feel bad about it. Like maybe I'm not spiritual if I'm a musician, maybe I'm immature, maybe I'm sinful, maybe I'm rebellious, right? Mm -hmm. So you start to incorporate these messages. And then Lipton also has this thing called loaded language, and you'll definitely relate to this one, I can tell. (laughs) (laughs) So this is sort of like the flip side of like doctrine over person. So it's like the doctrine over person sort of suffocates the personality, right? Like normally human nature fights against constriction and and will push the constriction away and then like re-regulate oneself, you know, sort Mm -hmm. of fit yourself back into, into place. But the loaded language actually blocks that normal pushback by inserting thought-stopping phrases such as, like, your question is of the devil. Well, now you can't even ask questions. Right. Now you stop thinking to ask questions. Yeah, because it's not you asking questions. You're being tempted or... Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so, so like, oh, another really good one, actually, because it was, this is actually a pretty good example. This is a personal one for me. So one of my personal ones was, um, I got in trouble once I was living with one of the leaders and he realized that I went out trail running, you know, a number of days during the week. Super normal (laughs) and healthy. (laughs) Oh, no, 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 Rachel. (laughs) Right. So what I was told was that my desire to go running was body focused indulgence. 
and also an external focus on how my body looked. So that's obviously shallow and not of right. God. Right. And, and so I stopped, I stopped running and do you know, I never even thought about it again. It was like, I accepted it as truth. Weird. It was done. And I had been an athlete my whole life, but it That's was like, bonkers. I know. And probably, you know, it's funny because when I think about it in retrospect, there may have been a grain of truth in that, which again is really uh, so commonly where manipulation lies, you know, in a power structure, it's like, there's a grain of truth. Mm -hmm. So then it gets you and then you, and then you're going to believe all the other stuff around it. That's actually untrue. Um, So maybe there was like a grain of truth in that. And then that's why I was able to just completely shut that off. So I didn't, I did not exercise my body for eight years. Nothing. I bet that felt awful. (laughs) Horrible. Like, again, you know how you say it's like, you know, there are always these very interesting stories of like, oh, I've been depressed for so long. And then we start diving in and it's like, of course you were depressed. You couldn't even be who you are. How could you not be depressed? Yes. Well, and like at 13, like when I, I actually was like suicidal at 13, which I feel like is kind of not normal for a 13 year old to be suicidal. And I now looking back on it, um, it freaked my parents out and they didn't handle it well, but looking back on it now is I was like, I was taught not to like care about myself. You know, I was taught that God was the only important thing and that I was like human garbage. So like, of course I got into this weird, like I am nothing kind of piece of shit. So, and I think my mom did take me to a counselor, but I think the counselor suggested maybe some medication for a little bit. And my mom was like, no, no, we don't do medication. We don't do that. We're not going to do that. And um, anyway, I just, I feel like that can attribute so much, especially in the developmental stages where your brain and your body's developing and, and shit's hard anyway, because puberty, you know, (laughs) that is in the same way that, that you were like, well, I'm, I'm not going to exercise. Well, okay. So you could have had some mental health issues with that because it's been proven that exercise does help mental health, you know? And so there's all these things that if we just look deeper, we can be like, ah, that is, that's probably part of why I was feeling this way. And now looking back, I'm like, I, I don't think I cared about myself and I, I felt like I couldn't be myself and I felt all these different things. And I, I just thought I, there was something wrong with me, but I think that was all very normal. developmentally and then being told on top of that that I was inherently sinful that I was nothing without God and all these different things that I I think it's the same sort of verbiage that you're talking about where it's like it just shuts off that part of of your brain from fighting for themselves and fighting for your own survival and your own health and it's yeah the teenage years were rough for me (laughs) as they are in general. I mean, they're just hard, but I feel like mine were especially hard because of this indoctrination that I was in of my own self-worth. 
Right. Right. Yeah. It's crazy. It's crazy what words can do to like fuck with your head. It's amazing. Yeah. Right. (sighs) Yeah. It is. Yeah. And, and, you know, kids, kids have complete trust of what they're being told, you know, and actually earlier when we were talking about this, I was going to kind of say for the audience, it's like, if people can't relate to this, I'm sure we've got a huge community that can here, (laughs) but if people can't relate to this, you know, just think about how you were raised in your family. And I remember I literally had kind of a time frame of an experience of realizing as a child that other families were different. You know, it's like you are raised in your little unit Mm -hmm. and you can't think outside of that. You know, nothing other than that. You kind of think everybody's, you just think that's normal. What, what you are in your family unit is just normal because it's all we know. Right. You know, so. Yeah. And if you're not exposed to other units or, or other beliefs or other worldly quote things, and it's like, oh, well, everyone's like this. This is just how it is. Yeah. And your kids do trust you, which is actually why it's terrifying to be a parent. <laughs> <laughs> you speak from I, experience. <laughs> yes. I have an eight-year-old and, and, um, I had her at 20 because I also was not given the benefit of sex education um, because we were all taught abstinence. Like it's a sin to have sex and all that stuff. And, but of course we did. Yeah. Because, um, and so we also believe that, you know, abortion was wrong and, and everything beyond that. And so, I mean, no regrets. I, I love having my daughter. It's just that it's, it's such a huge responsibility. And while I'm deconstructing while parenting, oh my my God, (laughs) I'm like, what do I say? What do I do? Cause I'm now I'm so like hyper aware. And, and before I started deconstructing, she was sort of there a little bit with like my parents and me and sort of like learning about heaven and hell and all these different things. And, and I'm really trying to just go about it in a way of like, well, you know, we don't know if that's true. You know, that that's, that's what some people believe and that's fine. And if you want to believe in heaven, that's fine. But like, just sort of going about it from like, please ask questions and please remain like critically thinking, Yeah, you know, and that's sort of how I'm trying to like approach it because that is what I feel like I would have wanted my parents to do for me Yeah, just to keep that no mental blocks, no weird verbiage, like cutting off anything and just being like, Hey, let's just explore and like figure it out. And I don't know, I want to raise a scientist or something like someone who like, you know, asks (laughs) lots of questions Yeah, (laughs) because it's super important, but it's so important and you've nailed it. Like that really is It's the only real antidote that I know of is like Mm -hmm. raising kids with critical thinking skills and encouraging their ability to question and to explore. And, 
Because kids have lots of questions naturally. They just do. They question everything. And if you shut them down, then it's like, of course, you're going to steer them in like this certain direction. Yeah. Um, I did have one more question, though, I wanted to ask you. But I was wondering if, um, because, okay, so do you, do religious beliefs and practices contribute to the development of certain disorders like obsession, oh, yeah. anxiety, depression, things like that, because I have either seen it firsthand or have suffered from it in my deconstructing. Um, and anxiety, I feel like it's a huge one because there are so many people that I feel like have rapture anxiety and I'm, are you aware of rapture? Yeah. Yeah. And it's not even in the Bible. It's not even a thing. I don't even know why we were taught it, but you know, it's, it's things like that or, or anxiety about hell. If I, if I fuck up, I'm going to, you know, so it's, I feel like some of these people got anxiety as children and are dealing with it you know, in their adulthood, I don't know statistics to back that up. I haven't, you know, done any studies. I didn't know if you were more aware of that in your own, you know, professional opinion, but that's something I literally am curious about if it can contribute to disorders like that. And even obsessing over something because just the way that we were raised, is that like a thing? Oh yeah. I mean, you know, any environment that kind of lacks the boundaries that mm-hmm. the, these groups tend to have and like preys on certain vulnerabilities, anything that sort of confines your nature will, will ultimately damage. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's interesting. I was actually thinking about um, a woman who I met who left seventh day Adventism, Mm -hmm. seventh day Adventist. And we were having this conversation that was really interesting. And she had like, uh, to me, it was sort of an epiphany. Um, but she, she talks about how she went through, she left at 18. She had all the things that one deals with when they first get out and have known nothing else in the world. Right. Just like landing there, like, Oh my God, yeah. Where have I landed? What do I do? You know, the, the, all the things that come around that, right. Serious (laughs) anxiety, (laughs) possible depression, entering into drinking and drugs, sex, you know, numbing out. I mean, a lot of people kind of go that route when they first Mm -hmm. leave. Um, So she talks about how that was kind of the first thing. Then there was stuff years later that she uncovered around uh, sexual abuse stuff that was going on. That was a whole nother level of exploration and kind of healing and discovery for her. And now she's in her fifties and she was saying, she was sharing with me that just recently she realized that because of the lack of boundaries and the patriarchy that she was in, she was groomed to have narcissistic relationships. And it was like this epiphany that she had in her fifties, you know, just these incredible layers of 
what unfolds in our healing process and our discovery and the connections, you know, of it's so personal too, right? Because even we may have grown up in the same exact church, the same environment, but like the rapture teaching, you know, totally paralyzes and cripples one child and another child seems to be just fine with it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like we do we take things in, in different ways, depending on who we are as humans. And so it's like, you really have to just honor where somebody's at in that moment and, and work with that. And, and I, I love that, you know, we did kind of touch on this already, but around this question, it's like, sometimes there are, you know, there are issues that may have been created from the family unit, right? Like we all have stuff that we're working through from our family of origin. Mm -hmm. Um, and I see religion and sort of those groups. It's just like, it's another whole layer of that. And you kind of have to sort through why I'm at where I'm at now with the anxiety or the depression and really move into that discovery, you know, like a, a cool process of discovering how you internalized and incorporated whatever it was that is leading to that current day experience. Um, and sometimes it's like, it's a, sometimes like we said, somebody is depressed because they've been living in a world that they can't even be themselves in. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they're depressed for other reasons, you know, and it's right. substantial or it's, you know, lots of different things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Um, oh, I do have um, a question about your cult experience did you ever struggle with like mental health? Oh yeah. This was a good question. So, um, so here's what I realized again, when I like reflected on this. My one line answer initially would have been like, no. Um, and actually my experience while I was in the group was really very positive in a lot of ways, you know, so that's always weird and <laughs> it is what it is, you know, I mean, there's just, there were really, there were some really amazing things and obviously things that worked for me. Otherwise many of us wouldn't have stayed, you know, but when, when I was looking at that and going, um, like the piece that was really, really not good for me was this whole element around my family. And so when I was thinking about that, it was interesting kind of in the context of mental health, because what happened for me is that right away, pretty right away, the teachers got on my case that I was too attached to family. And it was very obvious to me that the undercurrent, you know, they were kind of like generous in their language. You know, again, it was totally manipulation waiting mm -hmm. for me to get to the place where I personally would discover myself, how deep the attachment was that I had to completely cut them out of my entire life. Right. So 
and you know, they had a whole, like, again, the whole system that they had created. It was so, so many manipulative messages around family where the entire agenda was isolation, but then they used certain people as examples. Oh, see, so-and-so sees their family, but that was basically because there was no threat at all of them leaving, you know? And I probably right from the beginning, they kind of knew, like I was, I was genuinely tight with my family and loved them and liked hanging out with them. And so I think they, they just honed in on that right away. And what happened in that process was that they gave me about a year and I was seriously indoctrinated because I was actually living in a program. It was called a novice program. So I was like a mini nun in training, basically, where we took certain vows and we were expected to be at absolutely everything. Um, So like communion every single morning, minimum of two classes a week, Sunday service, any event going on, you know, four-day workshop, weekends, et cetera. So what happened was after about a year, we're approaching. So I joined in October, the year went by and it was that next Christmas that I knew they were going to work me over with about going home to see my family. And I wanted to go home and see my family, but of course now I'm, I'm enmeshed in this whole group and I have my sisters, you know, all the language to mm-hmm. the teachers were father, Peter and mother, Claire, you know, and wow. I, I now refer to them as Peter and Claire. <laughs> um, but they, this was, um, they were basically like, I knew as Christmas was approaching that they were going to put pressure on me. Cause I had already received all these messages, right? Christmas is the most sacred of all holidays other than Easter and the resurrection of Christ, you have to be with your faith. Like, why would you on the most spiritual of holidays, why would you not be with your spiritual family? Hmm. It's so like beneath you and of the darkness and not uh, in alignment with God and God's will for you that you would go home to your family and, and be with these people that are like laughing and drinking, you know? And so I knew I knew that was coming, but I'll tell you, Rachel, the process of having to face that and this struggle where I had such incredible pressure that I was taking really seriously. Like I, I really felt like I was choosing family over God and how could I do that? You know, I mean, that's a heavy, heavy choice. And I also knew that there would be consequences for that. You know, like if I went home for Christmas, I knew that I would be seen. That's, that's a decision toward familial attachment instead of a choice toward God. So the ministerial track that I wanted to be on would be withheld from me because I couldn't be a pure minister if I was attached to my family. So I knew for myself that that was one of the rules that they had for me, that I was going to have to prove that I was not attached to my family. And that was going to mean completely cutting them off. 
when I think back on that very first major uh, ordeal for myself, that major struggle, I mean, and, and when I was uh, creating the podcast and doing my story, Rachel, I, I opened my journals from that time for the first time since I had left. And when I looked at my notes in that journal uh, around that time, it is so sad. I mean, I remember spending hours in that chapel on my knees, sincerely crying my eyes out. And just, I was so tortured. It was like, it was like somebody's hands had come into my body and were tearing my chest in opposite directions. You know, like I was so divided. I mean, I was being asked to choose my family or God. Mm-hmm. And I, and I, that was the choice for me, right? I wasn't in a mentality of like, oh, I'm choosing this group or I'm choosing the teachers. It was like my loyalty and devotion to God, the sacrifice and the representation of how I'm going to live honoring God, which means serving God, which means giving up family for service. When I think about that, I realized And this was only in relation to your question that I've really seen this like mental health wise. When I really go into that, I went into a total split. And after a while of that experience happening over the course of years, that struggle, it was so devastating to me that I finally got to a place where I think it was just easier for me to go like, I'm done with this. It was sort of like, I kept forcing my parents to respond to me in a way that I knew I would then have to go, you're of the darkness or you don't understand, or you're not honoring my free will. Mm -hmm. Like I had to push them into that so that I could create an argument in my own mind that made sense to me that I really should cut them off. But it took me years to do that. And after that, when the cutoff finally happened, I was thinking about that and how I was kind of so happy and well in this group. But I remember in the beginning, I would have one thought about my family And I would feel sick to my stomach like, and that wasn't that sickness was the wisdom and truth inside of me going, what the fuck is going on right now? This is something's very wrong, but I couldn't process it that way because I was so convinced that it was all right. So your body was like basically trying to tell you that this was wrong you know, and your brain was just kind of like overpowering it. And it's crazy. It's crazy how much we are taught not to listen to our bodies in this narrative that our bodies are literally trying to save us, you know, and they're like, don't listen to your body. Your body's sinful. Yeah. You know, and that's also such an amazing part of like post high control group healing work, you know, is that discovery of the wisdom and information that our body has for us when our minds 
you know, just is slower on the draw. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. Cause I also was not taught to listen to my body either. And it's, it's a whole learning experience, but yeah, it's crazy that you were like, you went through the process of like turning that off for yourself to appeal to what your mind wanted to believe or, you know, whatever. And then now you're going, then you had to go back to the process of turning it back on to figure your shit out, (laughs) I guess. Yes. And also what's kind of interesting about it is, you know, as time went on, I thought about my family less and less. And when I consider that, I realize that was a mental break. It was like a, di- a, I, a forced dissociation that I did on myself. Mm-hmm. Talk about mental health. I mean, I, it, it was a survival thing, right? I mean, I couldn't exist in that group with my family. So I had to get myself there somehow. And I freaking did it. And then what's fascinating, and I hope that this is might provide a little hope for people who maybe just feel so damaged leaving their group. I mean, we as humans are so incredible in terms of our capacity to heal, even physically, right? Like the neuroscience that we've got we mm-hmm. now know that we can actually rewire our brain. We can start, we can have new thought patterns that get established in our brains. I mean, it's really, really incredible. But this is, this was an interesting piece. As soon as I left, there was, I felt, I felt maybe a little worried that my family like wouldn't take me back. Mm-hmm. Like, I think I, I had that thought, um, but so right away, there was sort of all these amazing things that happened and I, and I did enter right back into connection with family and thank God, you know, I'm sort of one of the lucky cases where I, like my brother just scooped me right up, like right into the fold and was like, come live with me, you know, to the extent of come live with me. So we were living in our, our two bedroom apartment on the Upper West Side, you know, with all of our furniture that I grew up with in my family home. And I mean, it was really, it was so comforting and meaningful and, and, and here's what was interesting is of course in the group, I had been in this mindset that everybody else, like that the world, you know, that's a world, <laughs> the world, the, the worldly people, you know, the put down, mm-hmm. um, that they were other. And certainly the big message I think was like that they weren't as spiritual as we were, right? They weren't as evolved. They couldn't be, they couldn't even relate in the ways that we were relating, right? Because of course there was also the whole, when confession gets manipulated, which essentially means like all your shit is exposed in front of anyone, anyone, everyone at any given time. Mm -hmm. And Anyway, that's a manipulation tactic that gets used for a variety of things. But so back to my brother and getting out. And I was sure um, because we also had um, 
you know, because those of us who were in ministry and sort of progressing in that way had students in this dynamic that we were also counseling. So we were taught how to counsel and all that kind of stuff. So in that, in that dynamic, the idea was that, you know, we've got all these skills. We're teaching people how, you know, positive communication with, that was actually like, you know, normal psychological work that's mm-hmm. come in in couples therapy and things like that. We did a lot of the Harville Hendricks work. And, but in any case, I really, with all this work that we were doing, the psychological work, the spiritual work, you know, we really, thought that we had something that kind of others didn't. Not only was it a huge wake up to me that my brother could totally relate to me, that the love was there, that I felt really close to him, that we could talk about hard stuff. It was like, none of this was true. And no wonder, like, no wonder this family that I had and, and remembered it was real because when I came out, they were right there again with me. And, you know, we had to majorly process lots and lots of things that happened Mm -hmm. and, and they were willing to do that with me and thank goodness. And that was all amazing. But what was really interesting was that it really, it, it didn't take any time for me to feel their love for me again, which also helped to connect me back to who I was before then. You know, not that I feel like I had lost myself entirely. That kind of wasn't my experience, but there were elements that had definitely been manipulated. Right. Um, but I, I share that piece because for people, people who were feeling like they were just so wounded and coming out. I, in my experience, it was actually quite easy for me to return to myself and to reconnection with, with that family unit, you know, and maybe for somebody else that's friends or particular relatives or whatever it is, but it's surprising that I could detach so completely, like real, like dissociation mm-hmm. and then be right back in love with them. And so I just share that as like a little hope that like, if you just feel like, oh, can I even like get back to normal? You know, that in my experience, that really did happen. Um, yeah. And I'm so grateful for it, you know, but like from total dissociation, to feeling myself, like literally just needing to get out of that environment. Mm -hmm. And that does happen for people. It does, you know, that there's, and sometimes it's a much longer process, but certainly that the reconnection with self is possible and, and everybody's journey is different, but um, it can also sometimes be surprisingly quick, you know, and that's not to say that issues don't continue to come up, but I'm talking about the, like, who am I? you know, yes. like feeling myself again. Mm-hmm. That's amazing though. I love that. I love that you were able to come out of that controlled environment and still like 
feel the love of your family and then find yourself again. Cause I mean, there's definitely different ways to find oneself again, but um, I feel like when people can remind you who you are, you know, like they know you it's comforting too, because, because you question yourself so much, especially after something like that, you, you have so many questions. And if, if people can kind of validate that for you, it's huge. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's all I had, Jennifer. Um, thank thank you you so much. It was so lovely meeting you and connecting with you. And I'm so pumped about this episode and Yay. putting it out there and I feel Thank like we you. we talked about some really great stuff yeah I'm, I'm proud of us Excellent. <laughs> so yeah um if you can um send me links so people can find you I I want people to go on and listen to your story too because it's 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 a lot but it's it's so good and you and you word it so well and, and I felt like I really got to know you too without oh, you know before actually meeting you and just yeah. um and I've listened to a couple other episodes too but it's I love what you're doing and and yeah thank you so thank much Rachel I love what you're doing too I'm so psyched I'm I'm in you. you know I'm listening to your podcast I'm now like sailing through the episodes that's, That's awesome. Really, I'm yeah, so glad. It's really cool. And it's fun because, um, I mean, I haven't, you know, heard a ton yet, but again, it's like, I think, um, I'm really kind of fascinated by the younger people in this community. You know, it's mm-hmm. just like, a, like, I feel like I so want to have a pulse on kind of what's happening for all of you. Um, because I really like there's, it feels like there's something new happening about the younger generation kind of go questioning things around. Yeah, it does. And it's, it's great. And it's nice not to be alone either that there's, there's other people out there questioning it too. And it's good to have conversations about it. And it's good to, I mean, I feel like part of starting this podcast for me was like a method of healing to an extent. You know, totally. so that's kind of why I did it. And, and now I'm connecting with other people and it's great. And I'm yeah. excited and yeah. Well, please find me on Instagram and Twitter at cheers to leaving. Um, please send me any messages of any topics you guys would like to hear. Um, or people to have on I would love to hear your feedback and just know that you're out there um, please subscribe and rate us or rate me on iTunes um, so I can start you know getting maybe a little more popular but I appreciate you know the few who listen to me and I'm here for you and I love you and we'll see you next time <laughs>